Hello folks and warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales-based true crime show that seeks out and recounts for your listening pleasures, well, for want of a better word anyway, some of the more often forgotten obscure crimes from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the much appreciated enthusiasts that keep me coming back to do so each time. It's amazing as ever having you joining me here today and I hope that as you're listening in, then you're all safe and well. Thanks for going out this week on the show to those who've kindly donated to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Macmillan Cancer Support Fundraiser that I've got running here on the show. As I've said, we've passed half of the total I'd love to raise for such a good cause because it is something that inadvertently affects us all at some point, doesn't it? And I'd love to see if we can push a bit more towards it. If you want to donate very kindly, then details can be found in the link within the episode show notes, or it's pinned up as an announcement on the show's Facebook discussion group page. Massive thanks are also going out this week to my returning and new Patreon support of the show, with shout-outs this time around going out to Lisa Davis, Cambry, Craig Danson, Helen Watson, Wendy Sanders, Charlotte Jane, Nicole Ablett, Tasha Sanders Richardson, Danielle Louise, Steve Collins, Celie Horton, Jan Hill, David Hannifan, David McCurdy, Sharon Simmons, Darren McKenna, Sonia, Victoria and Christopher Boggins, Marg Tomney and Liz Bedford. Thank you so much guys, it's very kind of you and it means the absolute world of you as always. There is stuff that's on its way for some and I hope that you've all managed to pick your way through the unreleased bonus episodes that are available for supporters. Bonus episode number 29, Madness at Mother Max, has just dropped recently and which by a sheer coincidence, the same case I believe has been researched and written completely independently by Adam over at the UK True Crime Podcast, the same week as the Patreon Mother Max episode dropped. Now this does occasionally happen. I always try not to cover cases that the other UK shows have done, because we kind of share the same audience really, and so much work goes into these episodes, I never really see the point of covering something that someone else has done recently. But there are times when it does happen just at random, and this is one of them. Regardless anyway, my spin on it is there and if you'd like to hear it or other tales including Double Brandy Dan and Auntie Elsie or The Rotten Rose of Devon, then doing so is easier than cadging a lift to Barnard Castle with Dominic Cummins. You just head over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast page on Patreon, choose your tier and go from there. Or you don't even have to find it because there's a link if you look in the episode show notes. Quicker than Donald Trump saying something stupid, you can be hearing these and more, and there may even be stuff winging its way to you. So this week then on the show, we're almost at the point of bringing the maniac arc to a close and having a bit of a tie-up to borrow from Rosie and Ben, a kind of, so where are we now episode. It's very much a catch-up episode this one. And we'll get to it shortly, following a word from this week's sponsors of the show, Noom. Looking after your health and well-being is especially important due to the state of things today, and any lasting changes begin with learning and adapting healthier habits. Maybe you've tried this in the past but found it hard to stick to, but perhaps you haven't thought about tackling change from a psychological approach. Well, this week's sponsor of the show, Noom, 
may just be able to help you there that you can find out about and sign up for a trial of today by using the exclusive link noom that's n-o-o-m.com forward slash true crime noom's a health app that's psychology based and what it does is rather than giving you a strict diet plan of green and red foods what you can eat what you can't eat it instead adjusts to your own personal lifestyle because it acknowledges that we're each different. Because it's psychology based, it will help you understand your own subconscious with food and exercise and what you need to develop better habits from bad ones, assisted with everything from an analysis of your diet right through to suggested recipes and exercise plans. It's even got a built-in step counter that before you know it, you'll be pushing to do extra each day. Now I've been using it myself for a few weeks now because I wanted to look after myself more in general and I really am seeing a difference with it. It's been easy to integrate into my life. I've got much more energy now because I've come to think differently about what I eat. I choose healthier now and it's all very simply tracked and logged on Noom's vast range in accurate food database. The Noom app's free to download and once you're in, you simply choose which plan suits you best, fill in the questionnaire that follows within 15 minutes you'll be away it's slick fluid and very easy to use and navigate after being straight and honest when signing up or else i don't really see the point i especially was impressed with how much it really did reflect my relationships with food and exercise which has come to help me understand my own lifestyle choices and change bad for good as a newbie, you're assigned a gold specialist who's always on hand should you have any questions or if you need any guidance or support, or you can reach out to another member of the Noom community that you belong to, so you're supported all of the way through on both sides. And if you have a hard day or a setback, then it won't scold you or lock you out of the app. It recognises that we're all human, and also that you don't have to change everything in one day. It's small steps that make the biggest progress. So, taking no more than 10 minutes out of your day to do so, to help you develop a healthier, easy-to-stick-to lifestyle, you can sign up today by using the exclusive link noom.com, that's n-o-o-m.com forward slash true crime to start your trial today. Once again, that's the exclusive link noom.com, n-o-o-m.com forward slash true crime. Now, as I said a number of weeks ago on the Maniac Arc, I wanted to finish it by catching up with all of the people that we've been introduced throughout the tale. The families and loved ones, those affected by the monstrous crimes of Robert Knapper, to see the kind of paths that his actions have led them onto, how they find themselves right now. I also said that Knapper is a suspect in a number of unsolved deaths. Now, I can't say with certainty that he is responsible, but I'll recount the details of a number of them in the next and final part of Maniac, and you can see what you think. As ever, the episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, guys, as I say each time, please do use discretion whilst you're listening in. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the penultimate part of Maniac, The Aftermath. So to recap then, we've looked over the Maniac arc at the horrific known crimes of Robert Knapper, the Maniac of the story arc's title. 
We've heard of the four confirmed sex attacks that he carried out over the Green Chain Walk in southeast London over a period of three years. We've heard of the awful murder of mother and daughter Samantha and Jasmine Bissett in Plumstead in November 1993. And we've heard of his most infamous crime, the brutal slaying of mother of one Rachel Nickell in front of her two-year-old toddler son Alex during a morning walk on Wimbledon Common in July 1992. Now these are his known crimes. As I explained last time around, Robert Knapper will never himself offer up his culpability in any other crimes unless forensic evidence proving his guilt in them slaps him right in the face. He is suspected of a total of 104 sexual offences along the Green Chain Walk over the period of the early 1990s. The four attacks that we heard about in part one of Maniac, plus another hundred that were painstakingly pieced together by reports of a flasher or someone following women, even just general weirdos that were reported by women across the green chain over this time frame, many of which could correspond to dots and doodles that were found in Napper's A to Zs. Police are confident enough that Napper is responsible for these, although as I said he won't come forward voluntarily and admit any responsibility. Plus he's a suspect in other murders within the capital that remain unsolved, which we'll look at next time around. Although of course, as I said before, I must stress he's a suspect, I'm not saying that he's responsible, because I obviously can't. But the actions of Robert Knapper, as he's tucked away in Broadmoor with no realistic possibility of ever being released, continue to be felt by many to this day for the horror that he's left them with. In one of the cases, Napper's actions have proven so difficult to overcome and to even live with that they prove to be fatal. Now the Metropolitan Police have been blasted since Napper's conviction for the murder of Rachel Nickell simply because so much of the atrocity that he committed could have been avoided and six women and a little girl may not have been attacked leading to three of them dying horrifically. I know it's easy to say with the benefit of hindsight that they should have done this or they should have done that, but the fact does remain that there were chances to catch Robert Knapper as far back as 1989, when he'd admitted to his mother that he'd raped a woman on Plumstead Common some weeks before. Now it's claimed no trace of a rape could be found, but how many rapes could have happened in the Plumstead area proximity in that time frame surely that a record of one couldn't be found? It seems a glaring oversight to have overlooked Julia's attack, which if Napper had been spoken to and a blood sample taken from him, would have revealed him as the rapist and prevented such further carnage. Instead, he wasn't even spoken to and was left free, and officially waited more than two years before offending again. Except that he's believed to have continued and carried out almost a hundred sexual offences over this time period, flashings, following women about, building right up to the two attempted rapes and one rape that we know of in 1992. He was also burying weapons at locations across London for future use. And of course, there was the whole debacle with him firing a shot through that woman's window. Then of course, perhaps feeling the heat in the South London area, he changed his hunting grounds, this time heading to West London, where one Wednesday morning in July, he saw Rachel Nickell and his son Alex. Chance one missed was very costly indeed, wasn't it? Then, in August 1992, six weeks after Rachel had been killed, 
Napa was spoken to by police over the green chain walk rapes after twice being reported as a match for the photo fit. He even agreed to give a blood sample that he actually had no intention of turning up for because it would have proved his guilt but two times he failed to turn up at a police station to provide the specimen and this non-attendance wasn't followed up. Instead, he was ruled out simply as being too tall at 6 foot 1. This is despite conflicting descriptions of height from the victims and the fact that Napper's got a pronounced stoop that makes him appear shorter. It's very poor investigating and indeed it seems as though he was rushed through for elimination as police were desperate to make the inquiry inactive. A question of resource and cost. Chance number two missed. Then, two months later, by which he'd moved Diggs in a panic to further hide himself should police chase him up over this blood sample, he was again arrested after asking for his police note paper to be printed. This is where the firearm and ammunition, the crossbow and bolts was found, leading to a term of imprisonment for him. The A to Z, Napa's Diary of Darkness if you like, was retained by police, but its significance was not realised at the time, and it wasn't linked to Operation Eccleston. Even the court file for this offence at his sentencing mentioned Napa's disturbed mental state, and the psychiatric report said he was, I quote, without doubt both an immediate threat to himself and the public. So even though he was imprisoned, it wasn't flagged up or occurred that he was a good match for the artist's impression of the green chain rapist, that geographically he was a good fit, that he'd been named as a suspect twice, and that his requests for blood samples were outstanding. Instead, he was simply too tall. Three weeks he was imprisoned, and none of these were put together, someone deciding, wonder if this guy's done anything else, and looked just that harder. Proper riding his luck by now, Napper was then almost caught eight months later when police were called after he was seen perving into the woman's house in Abbey Wood. He was found in an alleyway nearby, where he claimed he was simply going for a walk and was taken home, where the officer wrote in his notes, subject strange, abnormal, should be considered possible rapist slash indecency type subject. So a police officer thought this then, enough to note it, and the incident took place backing onto part of the green chain, but Napa was never checked further on the basis of this, and was again allowed to walk away. Too late for Samantha and Jasmine Bissett. Then, after Napa was arrested in May 1994 for the Bissett killings, the murder team also put his name forward to the team who were investigating the murder of Rachel Nickel but they'd already charged Colin Stagg, convinced of his guilt to the point where they were blinded to look at any other possibility, and so Napa's name was again ignored. Then he sat there in Broadmoor for many years, long suspected of it, I mean, long before he was even charged with Rachel's murder. When I first learned of Napa's crimes many years ago, it struck me that it was likely the same bloke who'd killed Rachel, so it must have struck countless others. It transpired that it even struck the barrister who was assigned to defend Napper at his 1995 trial, William Clegg QC, the moment he learned of what Napper was accused of. But with no forensic evidence to bring charges, nothing was done. Except that the forensic evidence was there all along, because Napper's DNA was found years later on Rachel's body. It had just been missed by the Forensic Science Service, only to be discovered three years later by LGC. 
Now they admitted that they'd failed to find it, which led to a review of up to 4,000 rape and murder investigations that they'd been involved with to establish whether any other key DNA clues had been missed in all of these cases. Can you imagine that? That's what a thing to check out. So when you hear the chances that police had to stop Robert Knapper that were either ignored or not followed up, it's quite shocking really, isn't it? I know police are under constant pressures as crime doesn't wait about, but this is a real lack of communication and recording, it seems. It put me in mind of the flaws of the Yorkshire Ripper investigation. And it's awful to think that really, this could have been stopped as far back as 1989 and saved countless devastation for so many affected people. The people who instead have to live with the actions of Robert Knapper. Let's begin with the women of the Green Chain Attacks. Now little's known about them, the names were never released, and even if they had been, I'd use my own discretion and I wouldn't want to pick away at a long-heeled scab by identifying them. Even though more than 30 years have passed since Napa began his degrading campaign, I'm in no doubt that the women we described in the episode, Julia, Susan, Leanne and Kathy, and their families can never forget what happened. I mean, how would you ever forget what happened? But I sincerely hope that they have been able to move on with their lives and not to let meeting Robert Napa define or ruin them. If, of course, they are still alive today, they may have gone on to become mothers and grandmothers in two of the cases, the first and fourth described, and you do hope that their brush with evil remains purely a memory for them. But sadly, it's not that easy for others. The family of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett, plus her boyfriend Conrad Ellum, were left devastated by Napa's actions. Conrad suffering post-traumatic stress after finding Samantha and Jasmine like that, and for a time it sent his life into a downward spiral. Now today he can talk about it. He's interviewed on several documentaries concerning the crimes, links to which are with the episode show notes, and he does firmly believe that Samantha and Jasmine's deaths could have been avoided. In one interview with the BBC, Conrad said, I can't imagine what they went through, especially Jasmine. Sam was an ex-hippie and against smacking kids, so all Jasmine knew was a lovely world where everyone was nice to her. Suddenly, she was being sexually abused and suffocated in her bed. Because it happened shortly after Rachel's killing, I asked police if they thought there was any connection. They said there were too many differences. But at the time, they had Colin Stagg under surveillance and they were putting all of their resources into that. The deaths could have been avoided, but there's no point in me feeling bitter. It's very sad, but I just accept it. I was more upset about Jasmine. She was so young, that's much more tragic. When I see children who were her age, I wonder what she would have been like. I love Jasmine as if she were my own. She was the only child I've ever bonded with. She was a happy child, very easy to get on with. I'd take her to the swings and she would think it was brilliant, like Christmas. I really did love her and it's left a void in my life. Now Conrad's not bitter about initially being suspected of the murders, saying, I don't blame the police for suspecting me. I worked at a plastics factory and had red stains on my hands and nails. I was locked up for 24 hours before I was cleared. There were a lot of strange twists in the case, 
I later found out that after the murders, Napper had got a job in the plastics factory across the road from mine. We'd be having a tea break outside at 8am and we'd nod to the workers changing shifts across the road. It chills me to think that Napper was one of them. Police had him under surveillance from my factory, but my bosses must have thought they were watching me. When Napper was arrested, people would make a point of coming up to me and I realised they'd been thinking I was the killer. Even now, it's hard to comprehend that Sam and Jasmine are gone. Now he admits that the fallout from Napper's actions left him in a downward spiral for a time and he took solace in alcohol, but he managed to turn his life around. At age 32, he took a degree in environmental sciences and today works as an environmental consultant spurred on by making proud the memory of Samantha and Jasmine. He's quoted as saying, If I could have just one more day with Sam and Jasmine, I'd take them to see the wildlife. Jasmine would love it, and I think they'd be proud of what I'd done. A tale that doesn't have such a positive outcome is that of Samantha's parents, Jack and Margaret Morrison, for two days before Robert Napper was brought to justice for the murder of Samantha and Jasmine. Margaret collapsed and died of a heart attack just minutes after getting home from a holiday to help her over the ordeal of the previous two years. She was just 53 years old and is buried next to her daughter and granddaughter. Interviewed many years later, Samantha's stepfather Jack Morrison, now long retired, said, Napa took three people away from me. He's just as responsible for Maggie's death as he is for Samantha and Jasmine's. Maggie couldn't live with it. When something that devastating happens to you, the body begins to shut down. She always said she had nothing to live for now they were gone. Every day had been a living hell for her since they were killed. It was like a knife in her heart being twisted constantly. She died of a broken heart and believed until the day she died that Napper had killed Rachel too. Maggie would dream every night that Samantha and Jasmine were still alive. She lived with this for two years, but she couldn't take it anymore. We were minutes in the door from a break in Italy when she collapsed and died. Isn't that unbelievably tragic, that, isn't it? Jack blames police mistakes over Rachel's murder for the slaughter of Samantha and Jasmine, angry that Napper was not caught after killing her or carrying out the string of rapes because of police blunders. Even his conviction years later for Rachel's murder didn't bring him any closure really, for in an interview after Napper's 2008 conviction, Jack said, You can't put it behind you, it's always there somewhere in the background. I know I'll never get over what he did to us. The police should have investigated Napper at the time. Samantha and Jasmine could be alive today if police had not been so blindly focused on Colin Stagg. I know if they'd kept Napper behind bars, Samantha would still be here today. I think about them all the time. When Samantha first died, I was so angry that if I'd got my hands on a gun, I would definitely have killed Napper. I just hope that he never gets out. That day should never come. Now these are the often overlooked people in this, and I'm not meaning to sound critical here, but the ones who don't have books written, the ones who haven't been in the public eye. Samantha and Jasmine's names, as I said back in the episode, are often overlooked. 
What about those personally affected by Napa's most infamous crime, the murder of Rachel Nickel? Rachel's parents, Andrew and Monica Nickel, had to endure years of being in the public eye, even before Napa's conviction, and had always remained dignified, even in the spate of the vast media intrusion that they faced. At his trial for Rachel's murder, prosecuting counsel Victor Temple QC read out an emotional impact statement that sums up their feelings over the years since Rachel died, and a hushed courtroom listened intently. It reads, We have been asked to provide an impact statement to try and describe how Rachel's murder has affected us. This is a bit like trying to describe how you felt after being run over by a very large truck. In both cases you come out of a coma months or years later, having lived through a period where you were not really conscious of what was going on, but you keep on automatically breathing and eating. When you come to, you gradually realise what you've lost. The greatest loss is your future. All the things that any family hopes for and expects are completely smashed. There'll be no daughter to talk to in our old age, no grandchildren to love and admire. At a stroke, this has all been removed. The next loss is your anonymity. Your life is trampled on by the media. You are gawked at in supermarkets. You're avoided by so-called friends who think bad luck will rub off on them. Your son is devastated as he's very close to his sister. He avoids any close relationship because he fears losing someone else. Your mother, in her 80s, cries every day and wishes she'd been taken instead. Your daughter's partner retreats into pain and blame without the guidance and love of your daughter. After a few years, he moves abroad, and later you're stopped from seeing your only grandson. You become ever more wary of strangers. You reveal nothing because they might be media or have contacts with the media. Copies of your phone bills are obtained, and friends abroad ring up to try and discover where your grandson lives. You fight the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board for recompense for Alex for losing his mother in horrible circumstances and the loss of her love and parenting skills for the 15 years until he's 18. After seven years, he's awarded a derisory amount. The Home Secretary tells you that there is no appeal against this award. You deal year after year with the machinery of the Crown and the ever-changing teams of police and specialists. Some of them care deeply, but they come and go. To say one man has destroyed our lives is too strong, but that one man has changed it forever. You learn to accommodate these changes, but the pain remains with you every minute of every day. Every day Rachel's name is mentioned, a photograph published, or a home video shown, everything comes flooding back. We hope the man who committed the crime will spend the rest of his life in prison. That is the sentence he's given us. Now following Napa being sentenced, Andrew Nickell told reporters on the steps of the Old Bailey. Mr Napa has been found guilty of Rachel's murder. That means in total he has murdered two women, one child, raped at least one woman and attempted to rape two others. We sincerely hope that whatever the court says, that he will spend the rest of his life in a totally secure environment to protect all other people. A long time ago we came to terms with Rachel's death. Our lives have changed forever, but we've learned to accommodate the changes. We now hope to draw a line and move forward into the new year. 
It's easy with the benefit of hindsight to say that mistakes were made, but we never felt at any time that the officers and staff involved in the investigation gave any less than their very best. We'd be pleased to call many of them our friends. We're also most grateful for the brilliant work of the Forensic Science Alliance in developing a way to detect the vital DNA which trapped Mr. Napper. We'd like to thank the press and media for their efforts to ensure the investigation was not forgotten, but also to ask them to understand this is the last Monica and I will ever give an interview with any section of the media. Last and not least, we would like to thank all friends, relations and neighbours at home and abroad, and thousands of individuals who wrote to us for their constant support and love. Without them, the journey would have been much harder. This is the last time Monica or I will ever give an interview. Please leave us alone to grieve and regain our anonymity. What an absolutely remarkable family, eh? I bet you could have heard a bloody pin drop when that impact statement was being read. Have you ever heard anything like it? Sadly, as you may have gathered from the comments, a rift developed between the Nickels and the two other people most affected by Rachel's death Andre and Alex Hanscom. Today, Alex Hanscom is 31 years old and has grown into a strapping, handsome young man, fluent in four languages, an accomplished musician, and with a strength of character that his father, Andre Hanscom, says that he inherited from Rachel. But this journey into adulthood has not been smooth for Alex at all, because his tragic past has never been far from the surface. Following Rachel's death, Andre was so devastated by the loss of the woman he loved that he for a considerable time contemplated suicide, unable to cope with the loss, and convinced Alex felt the same. Interviewed years later, he said, My assumption was that he wouldn't want to go on, and I certainly didn't want to go on if he didn't want to go on. So part of that journey back was working out a suitable method for suicide. I had absolutely no will to go on without Rachel. I just assumed, just as clear as that, that there was no reason for us to continue alive. I started to explain to him that there was this issue and it was all about what we do now, whether we go on or not. As I was saying that, he looked me in the eyes and said, I want to go on. So they did go on. About six months after Rachel had died, Andre decided to try and make a new life for him and Alex, at first renting a farmhouse in France, then moving to Spain some years later after their whereabouts became commonly known and they began being hounded by the media, as we heard about in the third episode of Maniac. They were visited regularly by Andrew and Monica Nickel over this time, but rather than forgetting the details of the killing, Alex's terrible memories of the day began to emerge piece by piece. For example, when he was playing with his father once, aged three, his voice filled with indignation and he said suddenly, I was sword fighting when the bad man came. He pushed me over in the mud. That wasn't nice. Monica also recalled Alex telling her when he was five that he could no longer remember what his mummy felt like. Shortly afterwards, she found a bottle of Coco Chanel, which was Rachel's perfume of choice, and gave it to Alex, recalling, he took it from me, removed the lid, and as he smelt it, his face lit up. He said immediately, it's mummy's smell, and walked around hugging the bottle to his chest. It was a wonderful moment. 
heartbreaking that, isn't it? But moments of comfort like this were few and far between. Alex began having terrifying nightmares as he grew older, where he would awaken but be catatonic, and even such an innocent pursuit as a trip to the seaside proved problematic when Alex saw a Punch and Judy show and became tearful when Mr Punch started hitting Judy. He developed a fear of the sight of blood. At the age of seven, he nearly severed his thumb in an accident, causing Andre to have to restrain him while it was being repaired in hospital. Such was his fear that he was going to die. It led to problems in school for Alex because he didn't want to study and he became a difficult child, leading to him becoming so difficult during his adolescence that Andre hired a live-in tutor and nanny, convinced that Alex needed female influence. By his mid-teens, Alex grew increasingly bitter about being deprived of his mother and what he described as a normal family life and had a brush with the police over the theft of a motorcycle, as well as the continuing disciplinary problems at school. He reacted badly when Andre began dating again, many years after Rachel's death, and by which time had become estranged from his grandparents, not having seen them since he was eight years old. Now there are conflicting reports about why this is. Some accounts claim that Mr and Mrs Nickel continued to see Alex until Andre accused them of putting the youngster's recovery back from his trauma by cutting his hair and making him look like, I quote, the village idiot plus allowing Alex to sleep in their bed, undermining Andre's efforts to get him to sleep alone. According to Andre, Mrs Nickel also confided in his own mother that she could take Alex away from his father at any time and bring him up herself. Andre confronted Andrew and Monica over the remark, and though both denied it had ever been said, the seeds of their rift were sown, and Andre went to the High Court to get a parental responsibility order giving him sole custody of Alex until he turned 18. Alex himself today claims that it was purely his own choice not to see his grandparents. Speaking two years ago, he said, There was a lot of tension between my father and my grandparents as he felt they were overstepping certain boundaries, while they felt he was being neurotic and overprotective. But I wasn't banned from seeing them. I just found it upsetting being with them. I don't think it's sad. If there are too many conflicts, it's better to be apart. Last year I wrote to them asking for videos they had of my mother. They sent them and said how nice it was to hear from me. Maybe one day we shall meet up again. I don't have anything against them, but they belong in a different world. Eventually, through strength of his own character and his father's perseverance and devotion to his son, Alex managed to turn his life around. He settled down and began working at school, and as Alex grew older, he decided he would move back to London to study music, which he did for a year. Eventually, he returned to Spain to live with his father, travelling for four years around Egypt, Thailand, Indonesia, Sri Lanka and India, where Alex discovered and studied yoga. It was a trip and an experience that helped repair the bond between father and son that had at times over the years faced great strain. Now both he and Andre have written deeply personal books that chronicle the journey back from Rachel's murder. That links to each will be with the episode show notes and that I do recommend reading because they tell a much fuller story than the summary that I'm just trying to present here. But what I found most remarkable though 
is the forgiveness that both have for Robert Napper. Andre was sat in court number one of the Old Bailey to hear Napper plead guilty to Rachel's murder, and years after the event, said in an interview, There is forgiveness, of course. He was a poor mistreated child at some time. He was in care and foster homes, and some people respond one way, and others respond in another. That allows you to feel some kind of compassion. It was a surreal and intense experience at the trial. He didn't look at me. He was probably heavily medicated. You could see that this was a very dysfunctional and distressed person. I always knew that anyone who could commit an act like this was an extremely troubled person. The frenzy of it is not the act of someone having a bad day or losing their temper. It's a process. We were victims. We were victims of an attack. We were victims of a police failure. But it gets to the stage where you think, am I going to do this forever? We didn't want to be victims. Alex added that he has also now come to terms with the death of his mother and has used his yoga teachings to help him move on from Rachel's death and to forgive Robert Napper. The nature of human existence is from darkness to light, so for me, my mother's killer represents the darkness of human existence. Forgiveness for us is that if you don't forgive the person who caused you harm, then you become that person in time. Although Andre had travelled to the Old Bailey to see Napa convicted, Alex chose not to. I didn't feel it had anything to offer me, he claimed. He went further to comment upon the complaint that Andre lodged with the Independent Police Complaints Commission immediately following Napa's conviction, shocked over learning of the absolute shamble of bollocks that kept him at large from 1989 that could have prevented Rachel and Samantha and Jasmine from dying. Now there's a link to the findings of the IPCC report following this complaint that do make for interesting reading in the episode show notes, and for a time, deeply resentful about the police mistakes, the Hanscoms attempted to claim compensation for the Met over the loss of Rachel in the face of some of the sums of money that were being bandied around also concerning the case, and that we shall get to shortly. Now he'd been awarded initially just £22,000, but that was increased upon appeal to £90,000 from the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority in 2001. Yet it was always more about the police being held to account rather than any monetary gain. Alex said at the time, I have little faith in the police. We were told one thing by them, then another, then another. The court action is about the money. It's more about the police being held to account. I'm not angry, but they haven't done a good job, and my mother died as a result. However, in December 2010, the Hanscoms decided to drop the case. Very much now his own man, a close father and son bond has now been repaired and retained, each grateful for having the other to love and look after over the years. The relationship with his maternal grandparents is still a long way off repair, although Alex claims in his book, Letting Go, that they are back in touch to an extent. Now both his book and Andre's, The Last Thursday in July, are deeply moving and I do recommend reading each one. Both Andre and Alex are also extremely sympathetic to Colin Stagg. Now Andre spent many years hating him, believing that Stagg had gotten away with murder. But following Napa's conviction, 
Andre wrote him a deeply personal letter of apology that in part read, I am sorry for the ordeal you've endured during virtually the whole length of this very sad affair and any part that I might have had personally to make it worse. I had been led to believe by officers of the Metropolitan Police that they consider you responsible for my partner's death. I now know that you were and are an innocent man who was mistakenly charged. I wish you a long, happy and productive life. Now following this, Colin Stagg was quoted as saying, It was a really kind gesture. I know how difficult it must have been for him to make. Understandably, he spent years hating me. To him, I was the man who destroyed the love of his life. After all those years, it must have been very hard to come to terms with the proof that I was innocent. I accept his apology with gratitude. It means a lot to me. It was the second apology that Staggered received after the Metropolitan Police were forced to offer him a grovelling one in the wake of Robert Knapper's conviction. Now this is the full statement from Scotland Yard's Assistant Commissioner John Yates that was read out on the steps of the Old Bailey. On the 15th of July 1992, over 16 years ago, Rachel Nickell was murdered on Wimbledon Common. It was a sickening and violent attack on a young mother out walking with a two-year-old son. It was a case that shocked the nation and one that has remained in the public conscious ever since. We in the Met Police began a major reinvestigation into her murder in 2001. Today, Robert Knapper has finally admitted his responsibility for killing her. At last, we can finally say that we've achieved justice for Rachel and her family. It's quite impossible to imagine the grief and the pain they've experienced over the past 16 years. This will always remain with them, but it is to be hoped the knowledge that a killer is behind bars will bring them some degree of comfort. Turning now to Mr Colin Stagg. The Metropolitan Police would have liked to have provided some clarity about his status in the inquiry at a much earlier stage. It is a matter of regret that the rules governing disclosure governing criminal trials have, throughout the past seven years, prevented us from publicly acknowledging the mistakes that were made in how this case was originally dealt with in the early 1990s. In acknowledging these mistakes, I need to and must set the record straight with regard to Colin Stagg. In August 1993, he was wrongly accused of Rachel's murder. It is clear that he is completely innocent of any involvement in that case. I today apologise to him for the mistakes that were made in the early 1990s and we also recognise the huge and lasting impact that this has had on his life and on behalf of the Metropolitan Police, today I have sent him a full written apology. We also acknowledge that there are other cases where more could and should have been done. Had more been done, we would have been in a position to have prevented this and other very serious attacks by Napa. I particularly here refer to the dreadful murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett in November 1993. I do say though the way in which murder is investigated now has changed significantly from 16 years ago. Improvements in forensic techniques, particularly scientific developments around DNA, new rules governing disclosure, improved training and a close and statutory relationship with the CPS all mean that the chances of such potential miscarriages of justice as in the Colin Stagg case happening again are very small. 
However, we must not be complacent and cases such as this serve to remind us of our duty to protect the innocent and to ensure that evidence is properly gathered and presented against the guilty. It is also now and lastly proper to recognise the dedicated and professional work of the current investigation team that has brought us to this point. They have been unstinting in their attention to detail and their determination over a number of years to find the evidence that has brought Robert Knapper to justice. In spite of the flaws in the first investigation, it is clear that we've never given up in our determination to bring this case to its proper close. Thank you very much indeed. Colin Stagg said he was grateful for the Met's apology, adding, I've endured years of living hell. I was the man who'd got away with murder and became a national hate figure. I was insulted, attacked, spat upon. By any standards, that was a handsome apology. They've literally put their hands up to the terrible wrongs they did to me and grovelled. It's about time. My only complaint is that the hand-delivered letter of apology went to my lawyer and not me. Yet they found me easily enough when they wanted to charge me with murder. So what stopped them this time? I'm very glad they made it clear that I had no involvement whatsoever with Rachel's horrific murder, because despite all the damning evidence against Robert Knapper, there are still some stupid people out there who think I had a part in her death. It's also brought me closure and left me free to get on with my life. What's left of it? I was still a young man when I was first arrested, and now I'm middle-aged. I just want to fade out of the public's mind and live quietly below anyone's radar. And you couldn't really blame him for wanting to do so, could you? Even after the case against him was dismissed, he became a pariah in the press. On the day newspapers reported the dismissal of the case against him, one memorable headline, alongside a big picture of him, read, No woman is safe. He remained on the Alton estate back in his maisonette on Ibsley Gardens, to a life of being abused and hounded, having his windows put through, sacks of hate mail and menacing threatening letters, maggots posted through his letterbox and much much worse, with public feeling that he was a killer who'd gotten off on a technicality strong in the locality and wider, all the while fuelled by the media whenever Rachel's case was periodically mentioned. They'd pejoratively refer to him as oddball or weirdo stag and were quick for any chance to intrude upon his life with countless sordid tales involving his alleged activities emerging in the tabloids. Countless times he was also mobbed by the press, with him retaliating physically on more than one occasion, and in January 1995, he was arrested after an altercation with a man on Wimbledon Common, whom Stagg threatened with an axe that he'd taken to carrying about with him, for protection, he was to claim. He received probation for this in May 1995 after pleading guilty to threatening behaviour and possession of a weapon. Now for 14 years he remained a pariah like this, many people still convinced of his guilt. At one point Rachel Nickell's family even considered taking civil action against him, such was their strength of belief. Marriage to a woman in August 1995, Diane Beddoes, who had written to him whilst he was on remand in Wandsworth Prison was short-lived, and stories involving Stagg would periodically pop up in the newspapers, whether it be in the vast sums of money that he'd received from newspapers for the rights of his story upon his release, 
to imperfectly lawfully mail ordering knives and arrows and the press sensationalising this due to the notoriety they'd built Stag up into to stories from his ex-wife Diane whom he split from after just 18 months alleging Stag's controlling behaviour or how he'd threatened to kill a man he believed she was having an affair with how he would bombard her with abusive letters and telephone calls Stag was in the papers so constantly that it ensured his was a name that you knew. It wasn't just, oh, he sounds familiar, which of course continued to stir up the hate campaign. Yet he refused to move away from the Alton estate or to change his name, considering the area his home and it holding many memories of his beloved father. He was unable to work though, claiming that he'd applied for hundreds of jobs, but his name alone being notorious enough to prevent him from being successful for any of these, and for many years following his release, he remained on unemployment benefits. Until September 2008, when he was awarded £706,000 compensation, in compensation for his wrongful arrest and prosecution from the Ministry of Justice, an amount that was decided upon by the independent assessor, Lord Brennan QC. Stag solicitor Alex Trebick said at the time, This is an offer that's been made and that offer has been accepted. Naturally, Colin is relieved and it will go some way to compensating him for the vilification that he's received at the hands of the public and media for the past 16 years. It will allow him to try and rebuild his life and to have some sort of normal existence. He's not angry, he's hurt and disappointed. He's gradually getting his life back on track and this will act as a catalyst. However, he admitted that Stag would always be seen by some people as the bloke who got away with murder, adding, Colin is realistic enough to realise and accept that his name, no matter what happens, will always be synonymous with the tragic events of Rachel McKell's death. In some people's eyes, he will always be the bloke who got away with murder. Now Stagg said himself following this award, It hasn't sunk in properly yet. I thought at first my solicitor was joking. I thought the establishment would make a token payment, but this is like winning the lottery. But what pleases me more than the money is that this is effectively a public apology. No doubt there will be still some people who resent me getting it, and some who actually believe I'm guilty. But over the years, I've come to terms with my life such as it is. The award is going to make a huge difference. I'm not going on a spending spree. I plan to bank most of it, because that's what I've got to live on for the rest of my life. I'd like to buy my council flat where I've lived for over 30 years and I want to put a new bathroom and kitchen and make a few changes in the garden and of course make sure that I've got food on the table and my bills paid. The best thing is being able to get off the dole. I'm a proud man who's never been afraid of work but nobody in the countless interviews I've attended has wanted to take me on. My name alone was enough to stop me getting work. Now I can work and I've got some business ideas I can afford to try these out, but I want to take my time and not rush into things. I'm still coming to terms with all the implications that go with the award. I'm also feeling a sort of peace for the first time since my arrest 15 years ago. I'm now slowly realising that I have a future after all, and that's a great feeling. But then as soon as news of this payout came out, Colin Stagg's past did too. 
People with sums of money such as this will always get those looking for a handout, whether they're genuine and it's warranted or not. Shortly after receiving his compensation sum, which was widely reported in the press, Stagg was reportedly issued with death threats by his younger brother Tony after he refused to give him £20,000 from his payout only days after being awarded it. Tony Baker, who had changed his name after Colin's arrest, made the threats in a letter to his brother, which police took so seriously that they arrested and cautioned Tony. Stagg said he hadn't seen his brother for nearly 14 years when he received a begging letter asking for money. He was the first of three from his 44-year-old brother, who lived in Birmingham at the time, and when Stagg refused his request, long since having no such kind of sibling relationship, he received a letter back from Tony saying, Sleep with one eye open and look over your shoulder. I've lost my kids, so i got nothing to lose now. I kicked your ass when we were kids and now we're older, you got no chance. I'm coming for you and I ain't going to stop until you're dead nonce. I bet you killed dad as well. See you soon, very soon, nonce. Strange that they have a lost touch really, isn't it? Now Stag informed police of this threat and his brother was arrested the following day. He said later, Tony only got in touch when he read about my home office award. He didn't bother to congratulate me or ask how I was. He just demanded £20,000 on the pretext of getting his three kids out of foster care. The threats unnerved me. Tony was always a bully, but luckily he lives a hundred miles away. But I wasn't taking any chances and called in the police immediately. After seeing the letter, they promptly arrested him and brought him down to London. I was told if I wanted to pursue the matter they would charge him, or they could let him off with just a caution. It was up to me. I decided to let it go, provided he admitted the offence and gave a guarantee not to do it again or come anywhere near me. He went along with that. It wasn't brotherly love that stopped me pressing charges. As far as I'm concerned, I don't have a family, and I don't care if I never see him again. I haven't seen him since 1995, and during the years that I was a public hate figure who supposedly got away with murdering Rachel Nickell, he never once offered me support. With a couple of exceptions, the rest of the family were the same. I've had more support and affection from my girlfriend and her kids than from my own blood. I thought that my days of receiving hate mail were over now that everyone accepts I was an innocent man. Stagg added that even if he'd wanted to, at the time he couldn't have given his brother any money anyway because despite being shown an official home office letter, his bank, HSBC, had refused to give him an overdraft of a few hundred pounds to tide him over. And when the money did eventually come through, Stagg claimed that he would make a few modest purchases and bank the majority, but wouldn't go on a spending spree, yet within 10 years he'd virtually spent the lot. He bought clothes, jewellery, several flash cars, expensive guitars, Star Wars memorabilia including a Jedi Knight outfit for his girlfriend Terry Marchant's son and an £850 Darth Vader one for himself and had three or four holidays a year, getting his first passport and making proper use of it. He also reportedly spent more than £80,000 on 16 Ibsley Gardens doing it up even though he was refused permission to buy it. I don't know if he had a platinum pentagram put in or what, but I digress. 
In an interview on Lorraine Kelly's chat show in 2017, Stagg was to admit that he had some of the money left, not all of it, but some. She actually got slammed for being too searching with the question of Stagg and his purchases, with many people taking to Twitter and commenting on the awkwardness of the interview. Now, I personally didn't think it was myself, but the link is with the episode show notes, so have a butcher's for yourselves and see what you guys think. But for someone who quite openly claimed that he wished to fade into obscurity, Colin Stagg has never been as media shy as he made out that he wanted to be. He's quite openly been interviewed on several television documentaries about the high-profile Nickel case, which he talks quite openly about. He appeared on British Current Affairs slash investigative journalism show The Cook Report in 1995, where he took and passed the televised lie detector test, although refused a truth serum drug, claiming that he was trifanophobic. Again, a link to this episode is within the episode show notes. He's taken part in several discussion panels concerning aspects of the justice system and has co-authored two books about his involvement with the Rachel Nickell case, both of which were released before Napa's conviction. He's practically like a series or two away from being in the bloody jungle. Now, I used both of the books that Staggered co-authored for researching and writing, both parts of the Pagan Who Became a Pariah episodes of Maniac, and again, the books on the case that I recommend. Both of them contain far too much detail for me to go into here. It would be a longer than bloody Pinocchio's nose. They detail Stag readjusting to life following his release from custody, his disastrous first marriage, his hopes for the future. Both books are well worthy of a read. Stag claims he was proud of his family name, that being the reason he felt no need to move or hide himself away, being indeed an innocent man. And he spent many years professing his innocence to whoever would listen. He'd offered DNA tests, would on occasion speak to the newspapers. As I said, he co-wrote two books on the subject, for which he received £45,000 for, and lobbied for many years to have clinical psychologist Paul Britton brought up on charges for being the perceived puppet master of the scheme that caused Stagg so much humiliation and that led to him spending a year in prison and becoming a pariah for many years afterwards. Now, both of the Stag co-authored books are highly critical of Britain. Indeed, it wouldn't really be a massive jump to say that they are openly scathing. Paul Britton's reputation took a bashing as a result of Operation Edsel. He was left blamed for the disastrous undercover operation and took severe criticism, with him being painted in the role of puppet master. Now, Britton's quick to deny this. He claims that he only ever saw letters from Stagg to Lizzie James, but the outgoing ones to Stagg only after they'd been sent, and then only ever advised on how to respond. He didn't in any way author them. He also does some backtracking now, as opposed to what he says in his 1997 book, The Jigsaw Man. Again, another highly recommended book, by the way, one that's been useful to write and research, Maniac. Remember, Paul Britton was also a consultant on the Green Chain Walk rapes and the murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett. All crimes that were subsequently found to have been committed by Robert Knapper. And yet, at the time, in his book, he ruled out any links between Knapper and the killing on Wimbledon Common completely and only seems to mark the similarities and the geography of the profiles he made for Operation Eccleston and the Bissett Inquiry after police told him they believed Napper was the person both teams were looking for. 
Yet Britton claims now that he actually advised detectives to investigate clues linking the murder of Rachel Nickel with the Bissett murders, and that if investigators had acted earlier on his advice concerning the green chain rapes, subsequent deaths could have been prevented, saying, Samantha Bissett would never have been killed if my early advice had been acted upon, and if it is the same person, then neither would Rachel Nickel. I sometimes wish I'd gone back and banged on the police's door. He gave police three pointers which he said would lead them to the green chain rapist. He'd already be on their records for minor offences, he would have come to the attention of neighbours, and his suspicious behaviour would have been mentioned at local police briefings. To this day, I do not understand why this did not happen. We were looking at an escalating offender. My advice was to look at the case from a local level, said Britton who also claimed that he questioned the legal basis for using such a sting operation to extract a confession from Stagg. My first question was, is this legal? And what the police said echoes forever with me. Please don't concern yourself with legal issues. This case was at the very top of the then Attorney General's watch list. The highest legal authorities in the land were involved. One of the myths that has been allowed to perpetuate is that there were a bunch of mavericks they were fully monitored at higher levels. Yet Britton was criticised by other psychologists for his part in the honey trap scheme, which we know, we know it was thrown out of court in a scathing address by Mr Justice Ognall at Stagg's trial, and he was vilified by Colin Stagg, who made several complaints to the British Psychological Society about him, claiming that Britton was ultimately responsible for ruining his life, and did not carry out his duties in a proper and scientific manner acting unprofessionally when advising police on the inquiry. After an inquiry by the society lasting eight years, Britain was exonerated of any wrongdoing in October 2002, actually coming face to face with Stagg at the society's offices in central London on the day of the hearing. Stagg had waited for the hearing to begin, but when proceedings were delayed, he lost patience, stormed out, and bumped into Paul Britton on the stairs as he left, calling the criminal psychologist a pervert as he passed. He then walked off, pursued by TV cameras and photographers. Now it took some for his relationship and trust with the police to repair following this, having been felt that he was left in the firing line and the Metropolitan Police were happy for him to take the flak, but Paul Britton did go on to assist and advise police, both in the UK and overseas, for several years afterwards before retiring only a couple of years ago. Also now long retired are the two police officers most synonymous with the case, Detective Inspector Keith Pedder and Detective Constable Lizzie James. Keith Pedder retired from the Metropolitan Police in December 1995 on the grounds of ill health, suffering from depression and exhaustion after 20 years service, the disastrous Nickel case having broken him. He went into private security consulting and investigating following his retirement, and in 1998 was arrested on charges of attempting to corrupt a serving police officer. In February 1998, Pedder started working as a private investigator for an Iranian businessman living in London, when inquiries led him to a London car dealer whom he felt might be under surveillance by the police. Pedder contacted Detective Constable Colin Blackman via the Tower Bridge office of the Flying Squad, where he also used to work, and without being asked by Pedder, 
DC Blackman carried out an illegal police national computer check on the car dealer and ordered a microfiche copy of it. The next day, DC Blackman, who was by now fearing arrest for the illegal PNC check, decided to tell his senior officer, Detective Chief Inspector Brian Batty, what he'd done. DCI Batty immediately called in the Metropolitan Police Complaints Investigation Bureau, who requested that the Metropolitan Police Director of Intelligence, Alan Fry, give DC Blackman retrospective authority for the PNC check, thus being free to use him as a participating informant to arrest Pedder. DC Blackman was instructed by the CIB to insist on a meeting with Pedder and told to pass him the microfiche, so a meeting at a Kent pub was arranged and DC Blackman arrived wearing a hidden microphone. Within minutes of this microfish being passed, CIB officers arrested Pedder for corruption of a serving officer. Now a transcript of the covertly recorded pub conversation shows that Keith Pedder never asked for the microfish, but was asked on several occasions by DC Blackman about his book. Now Pedder indeed offered to make some sort of contribution to DC Blackman, whatever that means, but when the case came to court in September 1999, the police claim that Pedder offered £100 in exchange for the microfish was rejected by the judge and the case was dismissed for lack of evidence, with Pedder being formally cleared of the charges on the second day of a pre-trial hearing in which the recorder Oliver Blunt QC ruled that the key evidence was unfair. Now I've got to admit that the circumstances of this sound quite strange really, a bit like the honey trap that Pedder's name was synonymous with, but with only the scant details about these charges, we can but surmise. Keith Pedder claimed that he'd been set up for this to discredit him because senior officers at the Met were concerned about the contents of a book that he'd written about the Nickel Inquiry that would expose the fact that decisions to go ahead with the Honey Trap operation had come from senior officers and the CPS. Not just him and Paul Britton sat around bored and one day coming up with a brainwave then doing it all off their own bat. He claims to have been visited at home by senior officers beforehand who advised him against publishing his book as he would risk both his police pension and contravening the Official Secrets Act by doing so. Now ignoring this, the book was delayed somewhat but was eventually published as The Rachel Files. Again, it's one that was very useful whilst researching and writing the arc and it's worthy of a read either before or after one of the books Colin Stagg co-authored just to compare and contrast the descriptions of the same events that are mentioned. Detective Constable Lizzie James, a real name has of course never been revealed, the undercover police officer from the Covert Operations Group who was tasked with entrapping Colin Stagg, found the experience and fallout from the operation so stressful that she was off work for 18 months afterwards and took early retirement from the police in June 1998 after 13 years as a serving police officer. She said that the pressure of working on the case caused her to suffer post-traumatic stress disorder and accusing Scotland Yard of failing her, issued a writ for damages against them for failing to provide adequate care and support after the bungled operation in March 1999, backed by the Police Federation, a spokesperson from whom claimed, her career and health have been wrecked as a consequence of a police operation where she was a junior officer simply obeying the orders of her superiors. 
Two years later, she accepted an out-of-court settlement ahead of a high court trial and received compensation to the sum of £125,000, with the solicitor Liz Ducks claiming that this was, I quote, a satisfactory and amicable resolution. She went on to say that Lizzie James had been an exceptional officer, professional, courageous and with a glowing career in front of her, and that the willingness of the Metropolitan Police to pay substantial damages to her must indicate their recognition that she sustained serious psychiatric injury. Mrs Duck said her client now wanted to put the ordeal behind her and rebuild her life, having moved to the Midlands with her husband, himself a former police officer who'd also retired on ill health grounds in the same year. A Metropolitan Police Authority spokesperson told the press in the wake of the award, It is now accepted that more should have been done to help this officer in the aftermath of the stag operation. It was a particularly dangerous assignment, yet afterwards she had little or no psychological support. The psychological report states that the stag operation had a devastating impact on her. Now the award created controversy because it dwarfed the amount awarded to Rachel Nickell's son Alex for the trauma of witnessing his mother's murder when he was only two. Lynn Costello, co-founder of the former charity organisation Mothers Against Murder and Aggression, described the payout as disgusting, saying The taxpayer is paying this money out and as a taxpayer I know where I'd rather have my money going to and that's to a victim of crime rather than someone doing their job. Colin Stagg too was angry about it, for although he'd attempted, he'd not received any compensation for the year he'd spent on remand awaiting trial, nor had he received even an apology at the time from the Metropolitan Police. He was quoted as saying, It is outrageous that she should be seeking compensation for the stress that I supposedly caused her. I find it very insulting. It's me who suffered the stress and anxiety. Now I'd love to know how some of these compensation amounts are set. I mean, who can put a price to reflect the levels of trauma someone undergoes? For example, watching his mother slaughtered in front of him as a child, or living as a figure of hate for 16 years due to police sheer bloody-mindedness and entrapment. How has each sum arrived at? Because personally, I don't think you can set a price for things like that. And I do feel sometimes that this has gotten very, very wrong. So, a very mixed bag for an aftermath here. And putting sums of money aside, none of those who we've met through the arc really had an ace time afterwards, did they? Or found the actions of Robert Knapper, the one person who binds all of them together, easy to come to terms with, have they? Think about the women of the Green Chain attacks, or Samantha and Jasmine's surviving loved ones and the tragedy, the absolute tragedy, that her mother just couldn't get over the horror of Napa's crimes. What about the difficulties Alex and Andre had in the years after Rachel's death, or Rachel's family eventually becoming estranged from their grandson, all because of the ripples of Robert Napa's crimes, or Colin Stagg, wrongly labelled a killer that got away, probably still by, who probably still is to this day, by a minority who are ignorant of the full story of the case. Robert Knapper holds the ultimate responsibility for all of this. Who knows if he's even aware to this day what the ripples of his actions have done, or is he too far lost in his own delusions of being a bloody Angolan freedom fighter, or marvelling at his own grown-back fingers to even be aware? 
As we've said, Napa remains in a secure hospital unit. There's more chance of me growing another hole in my arse than him ever being released, practically. And he is suspected of other crimes, but admitting nothing, unless that forensic evidence is found in cases that links him to it that can't be explained away. Then perhaps he'll confess and face charges for these, but who knows if this will happen. He is suspected of other murders, as I've said, that I was going to recount tales of here within the episode but I feel they're best saved for a final episode of Maniac, which will be coming shortly. As I keep stressing, it can't be said for certainty that he's responsible for any of these, but you guys can see what you think anyway. With that then, I shall wrap up here and begin on the concluding part of Maniac. I've had a book with Robert Napper's ugly mug and face like a twisted piss pot, you know, glaring at me from the cover of my desk for weeks now. And I won't be sorry to consign that bastard back onto the shelf, I tell you. Join me next time where we really, really will cap the arc off. It's ended up being longer than I'd considered, but you've got to do such a complex tale justice. And that's what I've tried to do here these past few weeks. If anyone wants to discuss the episode or the previous parts of Maniac, then you can do so in the Facebook discussion group episode thread that's always up, or through any of the show's social media. I thank you very much for joining me here today for this and the previous parts of Maniac. And all that remains is for me to say that I have been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak with you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.